Well, good morning, friends. Uh, let me add my welcome to CAMS. My name is Matt, and I serve as the pastor here. Uh, although there's a raging debate out there about when it's the appropriate time to start playing Christmas music, uh, it, was starting, it was starting to play in the Litson House before Thanksgiving, if you want to know where we stand on the issue. We can all agree, right? December is the appropriate time for Christmas music. Uh, the, the 18th century... Does somebody disagree with that over there? <laughs> uh, Anyways, uh, the 18th century Scottish politician and philosopher Andrew Fletcher once said, let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who writes its laws. It's another way of saying that there's something about the power of music, the power of song that's able to touch our hearts and capture our imaginations and give us things to see and say about the world that nothing else really can 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 get to. Uh, a good example of this is during the past week, I've seen so many people's Spotify wrapped and what you've listened to. I get to see somebody's C-SPAN wrapped, how many minutes of political TV they've watched. Uh, there's just something about music that gives us the words uh, to say things that, that we otherwise couldn't say. I, I love the, the quote of reflection from Eugene Peterson. He says, uh, that when we are normal, we're talk. When we're dying, we whisper. But when there is more in us than we can contain, we sing. When there's more in us that we can contain, we sing. And as we approach this season of Advent where we remember the, the first coming of Christ and celebrate the, the arrival of Jesus, and as we await his second Advent, his second coming, where, where he's going to come and set all things to rights, God has given us these songs, and, and it's, isn't it interesting that when God chose to first break his silence with the coming of Jesus, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that when God chose to announce his arrival into the world, he did so by giving us songs. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, which we'll be plotting through between now and through Easter, it opens up with the birth narrative of Jesus, but sprinkled out the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel are four songs. Uh, four solos, four arias, you could put it, that cause us to slow down, to, to take a beat as the narratives are unfolding, and for us to really reflect on the significance and the substance of what's taking place in Judea and Palestine 2,000 years ago. And as we reflect on these four different songs, the first of which was read this morning, the Song of Mary, I, I hope that we'll see that, there, that when it comes to Christmas, there's nothing sentimental about it. These songs are not chestnuts roasting on an open fire that these are songs of substance, they're songs of hope, that if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, they'll change everything about us and about uh, the, way that we, uh, the way that we see the world. And so the passage that was read is the first song in Luke's Gospel. You can call it the original Christmas carol. And in our time together, I want us to look at two things this morning. I want us to first look at the person who's singing this song. Let's ask the question, who is Mary? And then we'll look at the second question, which is, what does Mary sing about? So who is Mary, and then what does Mary sing about? Well, first, as we consider who Mary is, let's get there by pondering uh, what we, why we even know about Mary in the first place. Uh, so since we're going to be in Luke's gospel for a while, I thought it's, it's fitting to give us a little bit of, a, of an introduction on what a gospel is and what Luke's methodology was in putting this gospel together. So simply put, a gospel is a biographical account of the, of the words and the works of Jesus Christ, of, of what he said and what he did. And uh, in, in being a biographical account, biographies are making certain claims about history. 
Uh, they're making claims about things that unfolded in space and time. And because the, the Gospels are making historical claims, that means we, we can't ignore them. They're, they're, making, uh, they're, they're, they're stating a case for, for things that actually unfolded and happened in history. And you have to, when it comes to historical claims, you have to investigate it to see whether or not they're true. You, you can't just brush it aside as somebody's opinion or, uh, or something like that. You have to investigate it, and you either have to, to debunk the historical claim or you have to verify it and then reckon with and reconcile uh, the claim that's being made. Because having a right relationship towards the world and even having right relationships on the personal level involves a right understanding with history. We know this to be true in our relationships. Uh, I, I've been uh, watching a lot of football this season and I've, I can't tell you how many variations of the same commercial I've seen. It's an, in, it's an insurance commercial. There are two people arguing about something that had happened, usually something bad that's happened. One person's accusing them of you should have done this, the other person is denying it. And then somebody throws out the red challenge flag, right? And the video review person comes in and they watch back the tape and shows who is actually in the right. Right? We, we need a right view of history in order for our relationships to, to go well. And, and if you can take that principle and zoom it out to 30,000 feet, and we can understand how some of the divisions in our society and even in our country today uh, come down to not seeing eye to eye on history, whether that's not seeing eye to eye on the history of the, of the legacy of, of slavery or the, or the brutalization of Native peoples in our, in our country or, you know, or even election results in, in more current events. We see how a misunderstanding about history, about what actually happened, has caused so much strife and contention in our society today. And, and the Gospels are, are presenting us with a view of history, and they go as far to say that if you understand the sweep, uh, the claims that the Gospels are making about what happened in history 2,000 years ago, it, it actually has the power to change the world. It has the power to change you. These are things that you just can't simply read and then move on with your life and be unchanged. And if that sounds like a, like a dramatic claim, that's because the Gospels themselves are making those kinds of dramatic claims. They, and I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here. If you, if you just follow along with us over the course of Advent, even through the, the church year as we walk through Luke's Gospel, you'll see that the claims that, that Luke is making are, are these cosmic grand claims about the world and about us. And so I'd encourage you, uh, follow along, see what, see what Luke is all about over the next few months. And before you respond to the objection that uh, we can't trust the Gospels because they're biased, that they're written by, uh, by people who are, who are religious believers in the history they're conveying, well, let me respond by drawing your attention to, to Luke's methodology, which he goes out of the way uh, to say at the very start of his Gospel. And it, it seems, it seems uh, kind of standard to us, but it was revolutionary in the time in which it was written. It was revolutionary. Uh, the Gospels, as one scholar put it, are histories from below. In other words, uh, there are histories composed entirely differently than histories from above. Um, histories from above, examples of this would be uh, all the other ancient histories that we have, Herodotus, Tacitus, Eusebius. Uh, these are histories that are, that are focused on and written from the viewpoint of the victors, the elites, those in power, those who, who control the narrative and, and their accomplishments and achievements are embellished and their uh, and their, their weaknesses, their, their flaws are omitted or justified or, or pinned on, on somebody else. Uh, the Gospels, on the other hand, uh, aren't told, it isn't history told by the elites. If, if you look at, through the Gospel, you see Luke's methodology here is Luke is talking uh, to the people that the ancient historians wouldn't have given the time of day. 
Luke is having conversations with fishermen, with artisans, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with, with women who, whose testimony actually wouldn't be admissible in a court in the first century, by the way. See, journalistic integrity in Luke's, in Luke's day in the first century uh, said, said that you don't, you don't gather history from the lowly. You go to the top and you let them tell you what is true. Luke throws that journalistic standard to the side because he's more concerned about the truth than he is about the, the, the person that he's trying to get in front of. And so Luke gives us a history from below. And uh, the, the, philosopher, uh, the philosopher Karl Popper uh, many, many years ago wrote a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he's not himself a religious believer, but he's, he went as far to, as to assert that if, if there's any history out there that, that's to be trusted, uh, if there's any history out there that's, that's to be real and true, it's, it's these histories from below. It's histories that are told of the common person, of the dying man, of the struggles uh, of everyday life. And he says that those histories simply don't exist. And, and to Karl Popper's assertion that histories from below don't exist, I would submit the Gospel of Luke. I would submit all four of the Gospels, stories about the life and person uh, of, of a Palestinian man in a backwater part of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, not from an elite aristocratic family, but, but the son of a, of a carpenter. This is the kind of person, this is the kind of history that Luke records. And this all brings us to Mary. Who is Mary? Well, she's the unlikeliest person in the world. It, she's the most unlikely subject for someone to, to impart historical information. Again, one being, uh, being a woman whose, whose testimony wouldn't even be admissible in court. Of all the people that God comes to to break his silence, he comes to an unwed uh, soon-to-be mother uh, Palestinian girl uh, in a back harbor part of the Roman Empire. This is the kind of person that God chooses to reveal himself to and to bring into his plan of redemption for the world. And, and isn't it ironic that, that somebody who's, whose testimony wouldn't be admitted into court, God looks at that person and gives them a song, gives them words of scripture that, that we're even repeating and singing to this very day. You see, when God broke his silence, he didn't come to the rulers or the accomplished or the successful people of the world. He came to the people that the world is quick to forget. He came to the people who often go unseen or who feel insignificant, and God comes up to them and says, I see you. I know your name. You're valuable to me. And friends, maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're wondering that if God sees you or if God cares about your problems or your issues or what you're going through, the testimony of Mary, uh, of her life being recorded in Scripture and her words coming to us this morning as the very words of God should be a declaration to you that God sees you, that, that God knows your name and he knows your pain. And see, God isn't off doing better things or, or he's only concerned with the problems of VIPs, but he sees you. Today, he sees your problems and he knows your name. So, so who is Mary? She's the most unlikely character in the world by the world standards. But she's the exact person that God chooses to bring his son into the world. When while history is quick to forget the names and faces of the insignificant, God does extraordinary things in and through ordinary people. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is, in, is here in part to tell us, to show us. And so if that's who Mary is, then, then what's, Mary's, what's Mary singing about? What's this first Christmas carol uh, all about? Well, to give you a quick summary, Mary sings about a couple of things. 
And I want you to see what Mary sings about. Uh, to sum it up, uh, and we'll unpack it in a bit, we could say that Mary sings a little bit about me and a lot about he. She, she sings a little about me and a lot about he. So first, Mary sings a little bit about me. And do you notice how her song begins? You can underline it. In the first four verses, 46, verses 46 to 49, uh, Mary says the words, me or my, five times. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He who, has done, who, he who is mighty has done great things for me. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. See, Mary is singing in adoration, in astonishment, in amazement of who God is and what God is, is doing in and through her. Um, Mary, Mary is just awestruck that of all the different ways that God could have gone about redeeming the world and setting things to right, that God looks upon her and that God has swept her up in God's grand plan of redemption. And she speaks with this unique blend of humility and confidence. And this is something that I think has something to teach uh, about, about her and about ourselves. Uh, so when it comes to Mary, I think that there is a misconception in the church writ large that there's ways that, that us Protestants uh, can, can misunderstand and missee the role of Mary. And then I think there are, there's other sides of the church uh, that, that actually play up Mary too much. And so Mary's story gives us a little bit of a corrective. Mary's song uh, kind of gives us a right view of who she is. So on the Protestant side, I think one side of the Christian church gives too little credit to Mary um, that, uh, that Mary is just this passive, unwitting cog in God's redemption plan and history. Uh, but if we read the narrative in Luke, we actually get rebuked on that a little bit. When Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth after the, the angel Gabriel has announced that, that Mary is going to be the mother of Jesus, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And upon being met uh, by Elizabeth, the, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And then Elizabeth says these amazing words. She says, uh, blessed are you among women. That my, like, who am I that, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She, she pronounces this gigantic blessing on, on Mary. And, and I think it's important for us to, to see that Mary is not just this passive cog in God's redemption plan, but she is a, a unique person with a special role in God's plan uh, of salvation. Uh, and and isn't, it, uh, isn't it interesting that like in, Christi- in Christmas pageants, like Mary hardly ever says a word. But if, but if you look at like the words of Scripture and you see that, uh, that Jesus' two earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, that between those two individuals, Joseph is silent and Mary is given the very words of God that are preserved in Holy Scripture. Uh, we sing songs like Mary Did You Know, assuming that, that Mary was ignorant of what was happening in carrying uh, the Son of God in her womb. Uh, but, as we'll get to in a, in a moment, Mary knows. She, she knows what God is up to. And, and her obedience and trust in God is actually a model for us in what it looks like to follow and trust God while everyone else, and, and everyone else follows in her example. And so we pause for a moment to see how dignifying it is that when God set about to redeem the world, that he, he, he did it through the act of, of pregnancy, of, of coming to a woman and dignifying the, the, the role of bringing a child into the world. And, and so we, we often pay too little attention to Mary, but we should be grateful for how God included her in the grand scheme of redemption. That, that God would use Mary in his plan to redeem the world from darkness, slavery, sin, and death. So on the one hand, I think uh, us Presbyterians, us, us Protestants, we should give more credit to Mary. But I think uh, the opposite side of the church, on the other side of the church, 
Mary's song corrects uh, a view that maybe gives too high a view of Mary. Uh, in the Catholic Church, for instance, there's an understanding that, that Mary is often esteemed as being perfect herself, that she is sinless, that she's even a co-mediator with Christ. But uh, again, a, a careful reading of Mary's song should, should give us a dose uh, of reality on that. Mary, Mary say, sings a word of praise. She says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary, Mary is, is saying that she herself needs a Savior. She's not perfect. And perfect people don't, don't need a Savior. And so in, in admitting that, that she is, that she is a, a woman in need uh, of grace, of a Savior, we can actually stand on level footing here with Mary. That, that like Mary, we are people in need of salvation. We are people in need of a Savior. And so we can give Mary the respect she deserves. We can also understand that, that we, are on, we are on level ground with Mary. That in fact, that even as we sing these songs as the people of God today... Uh, we can sing with the same amazement that, that who are we that God would look on us and know our name and sweep us up into his grand story of redemption and of renewing the world. You see, uh, that in the eyes of, in the eyes of God, we're, we're seen with just as much honor and dignity as Mary is. And so that's what Mary sings a little bit about. Uh, but now, uh, what does Mary sing a lot about? Well, she sings a lot about he. She sings a lot about God, and you can underline it. Mary sings about herself five times, but she sings about God about twice as often throughout the song. She sings about God twice as often. And specifically in her song, Mary sings about two things. She sings about God's nature, and then she sings about God's purposes. So God's, God's nature and then God's purposes. So Mary praises God for his nature, for, for who he is. Specifically, you see in verse 49, she praises him for his might. Uh, verse 49 again, he, she praises him for his holiness. And then in verse 50, she praises God for his mercy. See, Mary sees who God is, that he is a God who is all-powerful, he's perfect, he's gracious, he's good. And that, and that might, that holiness, that mercy is displayed primarily in God coming close, in God drawing near. Think about the, the powerful people in our world today. The, it seems the more powerful you are, the more removed you are, from everyone else. Uh, the driveway gets a little bit longer, the fence and the gate go up, the security detail gets hired, plans are meticulously made to keep the powerful away from everybody else. But do you see how God demonstrates his power? God demonstrates his power not by, not by standing far away, but he, he demonstrates his power by becoming near, by, by becoming one of us, by putting on flesh and becoming human. That God in his infinite power and holiness and mercy who would, would take on flesh and become like one of us. His power is displayed by drawing near. And why does God draw near? Because he's holy. The holiness of God, when we talk about the holiness of God, we could say that holiness is God being uh, completely opposed to and allergic to sin, to those things that, that we do that are contrary to his will, the things that, that harm our relationships, that, that, that disintegrate our world and our society. God is completely opposed to those things. And because he is opposed to those things, it doesn't it doesn't repel him. It actually makes him go, go to it, to remove it, to, de- to deal with it, to, to make things right, to make the unholy things holy again. But he does so in an act of mercy. If God were pure holiness, he would do away with the sin and the sinner. But, but the scriptures teach that God is holy and he's merciful, meaning that when God comes to set things right, he does away with sin without doing away with the sinner. That he, he, does, he bears the penalty himself for what our sins deserve, but he gives the sinner, those who, who, who have failed and fallen short, he gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them mercy. He gives them grace. 
he, he, he forgives their error, and he invites them into relationship with him. He draws near to those who know they need mercy. So God uh, is, is praised in Mary's song for his attributes, but, but also God is praised for his purposes, for his, for his plans, for what he has done and what he's going to do. And what God has done, according to Mary's song, is he saved and rescued his people through a, through a string of great reversals. Through, through a string of great reversals. Mary's song is not just a spontaneous outburst. She, she didn't freestyle this song. Uh, many commentators will agree that when Mary is singing this, this Magnificat, uh, which is the title t- traditionally attributed to her song, when she's singing her song of praise, you can tell that she is steeped in the, in the stories of the Old Testament, in the stories of the people of God who, uh, who, who themselves were delivered through a series of of great reversals of where, of where the weak are exalted and the strong are, are cast down low. She sings the songs uh, of Israel being redeemed from slavery. Uh, the words of Exodus 15 are echoed in Mary's song. She sings the song of Hannah, this, this uh, woman who, uh, in, in the unlikeliest of ways, who couldn't have children, was gifted with, with, the, with the son named Samuel, uh, she, which, is, which you could find in, in 1 Samuel 2. It's repeated in this song. She, she sings the song of King David, who uh, was the youngest in his family and who was, the, who was often and always overlooked in the life of, in the life of, uh, of his family. Uh, he's the one that God brings into, into the power and to, and to be the king of his people. And this song in First Chronicles 16 is echoed in Mary's song. Mary knows uh, that, that, that God who saves is the God who saves in the unlikeliest of ways, that that God saves not through the not through the demonstrations of, of power or wisdom as we in, in the world know it, but but God uses His His foolishness to make uh, to, to make the wisdom of our world look foolish. Uh, he uses His power to make the power of the world seem like weakness. See, God always brings salvation in the unlikeliest of ways through through exalting the humble and casting down the powerful. And, and Mary sang in her song that that God's grace has come to earth, but it's come to earth like a rushing wind. It's come to earth like a rushing wind, and if you know how to sail, if you've been or ever been on the ocean and the wind blows up, you either know how to, how to navigate the wind and make it work for you, or you work against the wind and you, and you end up getting pushed over and you get thrown on the rocks. So God's saying that, that, that grace is breaking into the world like a rushing wind, so do you know how to navigate it? And Mary's saying that if you, that if you, if you go to God with humility, you'll find mercy. If you go to God with hunger, he'll fill you with good things. If you come to him weak, he'll perform mighty deeds on your behalf with his, with his mighty arm. However, the grace of God says that if you come to him with, with everything put together, he'll scatter you in your thoughts and in your heart. If you come to him wanting to stay control, in, in control of your life, he'll cast you down from your throne and you'll leave empty-handed. So do you, do you see the, the great reversal at work in Mary's song? And, and this is the gospel, friends. The gospel is not that God shows his favor to the good people and he scatters the bad people. The gospel uh, isn't that God brings in the good and he throws out the bad. Rather, it's, it's those who know that they're bad are brought in and that those who think they're good are scattered. You see, if, if, you, if, you, if you come to God knowing, that, admitting that you're scattered, God will gather you. But if you come to God thinking that you're gathered and have it all put together, he'll scatter you. He'll, 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 he'll lay you low. And the grace of God comes to us all in that way. It, the grace of God gathers those who are scattered and scatters those who think that they have it all together. So do you see how, how unsentimental this Christmas song is? This, is? this is confrontational to all of us on a number of different levels. Do, do we think that we have it all together or are we the kind of 
people? Are you the kind of person who, who knows their need, who knows their, their hunger, who knows their weakness? Because those are the kinds of people that God raises up. Those are the kinds of people that God saves. So if we think that we're something in ourselves, we're, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to be rejected, we're going to be uh, scattered in our thoughts and our minds, not at rest, but living this, this frantic, this disintegrated life. And so the only way, the only way that, we, that this song can be a gift to us is if we sing it the same way that Mary did, with this humble spirit. Who are we that God would, would look on us and send us his son to save us? Who am I that, that God would sweep me up in his plan of redemption? That, that, that God would do something with me and my mess? You see, Mary received this song with humility. And if you're humble and if you admit your sin, God will raise you up. But if you're proud and you think you're something, God will cast you down. And it's up to you, friends. Mary's song ends by saying that the promise that God made to Abraham, a promise which in Mary's day was 2,000 years uh, in waiting to be fulfilled, which was finally coming true in her day, that even now as we await Christ's second coming, a promise which Jesus gave to us 2,000 years ago, a promise that's just as old, but it's, but it's just as sure in being, in being kept, how, how will we respond? Will we believe the promises of God? Will, will we trust in the God of great reversals? Will we come to him empty-handed, trusting that he will fill us up and give us everything that we need and more? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who, who knows our name, who comes to us, people that, that the world will be quick to forget, uh, and you set your love on us and that you sent your son in the same manner as someone who is completely unassuming, completely... Uh, outside of the realm of, uh, of, of, of successful people, of accomplished people, and that you, Lord, through, through your Son, would bring about salvation for us all. God, cultivate in us a humility that knows that we need a Savior, and fill, fill us up with good things as only, as only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.